Wow, what a crowd in the house today. Amen. Come on. Yeah. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for spending your Easter with us. We appreciate you, your decision to celebrate Easter here at Gen U. And those of you that are watching online this morning, thanks for joining us as well. Um, just excited to see what's going on. Excited to see what's going on. I, I think that uh, next year we'll probably have two services. Um, what do you think? Yeah. yeah? We'll fill it up twice on Sunday. How about that? Yeah. Or three times. Whatever we need to do, we'll get it done. We'll get it done. All right, let's get into the Word this morning. Um, Easter, for, for those of us that have been pastoring for a long period of time, there are two seasons every year that, that get a little difficult when it comes to sermon prep, Christmas and Easter. I mean, it's like the story's 2,000 years old and it hasn't changed. And trying to find a fresh angle for Easter, you know, is kind of difficult at times. And so, you know, you struggle with it and you work through it and you try to figure some things out. But... The, the cool thing about Easter and the, the, the deal with Easter is this, that Easter is the pivot point for the entire world. It's the pivot point in the history of the world. Of all the events that have taken place since creation, the purpose behind Easter is the single most important event in the history of the world. It, it's just that important. You say, well, I thought, I thought the birth of Jesus was. Well, it is. It's very important. Without, without the birth, you can't have his death, burial, and resurrection. But, you know, the, the deal is that it's the resurrection that ensures, and the cross and his burial and his resurrection that ensures that we get in. It erases everything that Adam and Eve did, or not Eve, Adam did in the garden. For those of you ladies in the house today, you got a bad rap for a lot of time saying the woman. Didn't happen. <laughs> New Testament says that Eve was deceived, but Adam made a choice, and Adam screwed it up for the rest of us. You know, and then those of you that are going, I'm going to have a conversation with that guy when I get there. I promise you, you won't. You're going to be so glad you got in <laughs> that you don't care what Adam did, okay, or anything else down through history. But Easter is the single most important event in the history of the world. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No other religion can celebrate their founder dying a literal death, being buried and in the grave over a span of three days, then coming back to life. No other religion can celebrate that. Uh, I heard Dr. Rutland this week on, on one of his podcasts, and he was talking about the resurrection, and he made this comment. He said, he said, it wasn't a resuscitation, it wasn't a renovation, and it wasn't a revival. It was none of those things. Jesus was dead, confirmed by a number of people, placed in a borrowed tomb, sealed by a Roman ruler of the day, Pontius Pilate. But, and everybody that was there at that point thought that was the end. That was all of it. But it wasn't the end, for death and the grave couldn't keep Jesus dead and in the tomb. On the morning of the third day, there was an earthquake that was so bad that the soldiers that were guarding the tomb passed out. The old King James says they fell down as dead men. The newer, some of the newer translations said they fainted. Now, soldiers, I mean, that's, you know, they, they see a lot of bad stuff in, in wartime and everything else, but these guys fainted at the earthquake. They were terrified. That, they were, that's, that's being scared. Have you ever seen those goats that if you walk up behind them, you go, ha, and they just, ah! <laughs> Roman soldiers. God went, blah, and they went, blah. <laughs> this big stone that, it, that, that they rolled in front of it and sealed it, you know, um, 
rolled out of the way by a big angel or a little angel or some angel. And Jesus Christ, the one who was confirmed dead, who was buried and in the grave for three days, came out of that tomb and he came out alive. Come on. Everybody say alive this morning because he's risen. Yes, yes. And that's why we celebrate Easter. We do not honor and serve a deity or a God that is long dead and buried somewhere, but we serve a risen Savior. Our God is not dead. He is alive forevermore, and he is interceding for you and I, calling our name every moment of every day. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. That is the God that we serve. Let's pray the benediction, and we'll go eat. I mean, that's pretty much the story. You know, and we probably could just pay the, pray the benediction right here and dismiss, but, but there's something that I do want to talk to you about I, this week. And when I tell you that, it, that, that preparing for today has been probably it's been difficult in that I just couldn't find what I wanted to say this morning. And this past Thursday, and I've talked to the staff, the staff's been praying, I've had the elders praying, I've had some pastor friends. I even actually tried to poach a message off one of my pastor friends. I saw him in a restaurant the other day. I said, what are you preaching Sunday? He's telling me, he goes, he goes, what do you mean? What do you need? I said, I need a sermon. That's what I need. <laughs> he said, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. I'm like, that's great, man. That's great. That's, that's not for me. Thursday morning, I was coming back from, I'd taken my truck to be servicing Christ. I was coming back home to the, the sprawling metropolis of North Mossy Head. <clears throat> and on the interstate, I just felt like the Holy Spirit spoke this to my spirit that there are going to be some people in church Sunday morning that absolutely feel like they have been abandoned and totally, completely abandoned, and they're lost and alone. And those are the people I want you to speak to this morning, this weekend. And so we're going to talk about that, okay? While Jesus was hanging on the cross, while he was suffering, while he's bleeding out for you and me, in the middle of all of that trauma, he made seven statements. He made seven statements, and each one of these statements have specific meaning for, for us today. The first one he said was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing, Luke 23. He talks about forgiveness. Then in Luke 23, a little bit further down, he said to the, to the thief next to him, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That's indicative of salvation. That's the purpose for the cross. In John 19, he looks at his mother and says, woman, behold your son, speaking of relationship. In Matthew 27, 46, he, said, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abandonment. In John 19, again, he speaks, he says, I am thirsty. He's in distress. John 19, 30, it is finished, which is triumph. And in, and in Luke 23, he says, Father, his last statement is, Father, into your hands I commend, I commend my spirit, which is reunion. I don't have time this morning to talk about all seven of those statements because there's so much in each one of them. But I want to talk to you today I want about, about the fourth statement that Jesus made on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting to note that of all seven of the sayings, there's only two of them that were said in a loud voice. Only two. The fourth statement and the sixth statement. When Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, it's not... It's not my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a scream. It's a guttural, painful, agonizing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a loud voice. And then the sixth thing that he made, he, he, he was able to push up enough 
Say, how would you know? You don't know that. Yes, I do know that. Because when, when science tells us the, the, hor- the horrors of crucifixion, that for Jesus to even make a statement, he would have to pull with his arms and push with his feet because his diaphragm was just being crushed in there and he couldn't. So he would have to push up to get enough air to go through his lungs so he could say something. So he pushes up and he says, it is finished in a loud voice, screams it. So not only are these two statements, the fourth and the sixth statements, uh, important statements, but they're said in a loud voice. So he emphasizes them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist in Psalm 22, verse 1, gives us a, a, a picture of what's to come. Thousands of years before the death of Christ, he he says these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? anguish." So so one of the two statements that were said in a loud voice. Another thing that's interesting about this statement is it is the only time, especially in Matthew, that Jesus refers to God as something other than Father. He says, my God. Every other time you see it, it's Father, my Father. Every time you see in the Gospels, he's referring to God in heaven. He speaks about his Father in heaven. But here on the cross, in agony, he's screaming the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what does that mean for us? Why the shift from Father to my God? It denotes a change in relationship. You say, what do you mean? There's something that's happening in the relationship between the father and the son while Jesus was hanging on the cross. And it comes to a pivot point right here. It comes to the culmination right here. Because in this moment, in this moment, and you remember, if you go back in the Gospels, you see Jesus making this statement more than once. He said, he said I and the father, we're one. We're one. Here, something is happening. There's a shift taking place in the relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. It's broken. The relationship between God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, is broken on the cross for a moment. Jesus is abandoned by his dad. He's abandoned by his dad. He feels abandoned because he is abandoned. You see, in giving his life for us, for you and I, the forgiveness of sins, our our sin, every sin of our life, past, present, and future, because of those things, for the moment, it is required for God to literally turn his back on his sacrificial son. And so at that moment, the father's not even looking at his boy hanging on the cross dying. You say, well, I don't, know that I, I don't know that I like a dad that would do that. Well, just hang on. There's a reason behind it. Before you get your, all, all your ruffles all up in the air this morning, hang on just a second. This is happening for a purpose. He has to be separated from the Father because in this particular moment, it's this moment right here and right now when he's crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is in that moment that every sin that you have ever committed, that you will ever commit, or that will be in your future, Jesus Christ is becoming your sin so you don't have to die on a cross. He is being abandoned by his father to ensure you and I never, ever, ever have to be alone. 
They said, well, my, my marriage is over and my kids have grown, they're grown, they've moved away and I don't have anybody in my life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have Jesus. You have Jesus. He becomes my sin. You see, up until this point, up until this point, there's been animals that have been sacrificed. Every year, you know, for the, for the covering of our sins, for the atoning of our you know, an animal had to be sacrificed on the altar. You know, if you didn't have a lamb, a spotless lamb, then you had two turtle doves or some pigeons or something like that, and you would, blood had to be shed, and it happened every year, but it had to, be, it had to happen every time. Every time you sin, you got to go take an animal and kill an animal because blood's required. Because those sacrifices were the best that we had to offer in those times, those time, thousands of years ago, but it wasn't the perfect sinless sacrifice. Jesus comes on the scene, becomes sin for you and I. God had to turn his back and turn away from his son. Jesus is abandoned. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God, him, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is interesting to me though, that in that moment he still refers to God as my God. My God. That's very interesting to me. So what is, he, what is, what is really happening? He knows that his father has abandoned him in that moment. But yet he still cries out, my God. Denoting that it's not a loss of faith that Jesus has. There's a momentary loss of contact, but there's not a loss of faith. In that moment, Jesus is still reaching out in his faith in his father. Now, I just want to ask you this morning. When we're going through times of crisis, times of loss, loneliness, abandonment, don't we feel the same way? I mean, is it, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes my first prayer has been, God, where are you at? I'm probably the only one that's ever prayed that prayer. <laughs> but Jesus is praying the prayer. But I wonder how often when we're in those scenarios that ours is a loss of faith. That it is a, we, we just go, Pfft. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the promises are. God's nowhere to be found. He doesn't love me because he let this bad thing happen to me. He doesn't care about me because he let my marriage dissolve. He doesn't care about me because my friends hate me. He doesn't care about me because I've had this addiction. He doesn't care about me because of all these things. And I want you to understand something this morning. Even when you feel like God is nowhere to be found, he's right where he's always been. And that is madly in love with you. Keeping you holding you, walking with you, even, you don't, even though you don't see him or feel him or even acknowledge that he's there, he's still there. And so we have this crisis of faith. We feel like God's abandoned us. And, the, and we don't just have a loss of contact. We actually have a loss of faith. It's a crisis of our faith during time of, times of loss. We accuse God. We blame God. And you know what? One of the things that I think we can recognize by Jesus on the cross and his statement to the Father, I think we can understand and realize that God can handle our questions. God can handle your questions. He can handle it. He can handle it when you get angry at him. Now, but I got so mad at God that I, I shook my fist at him and I said a four-letter word and I called him something and, and so he can't forgive me. Yes, he did. And yes, he does. He's okay with you being human. He's okay with you being human. 
He's okay with you having questions about his will and way in your life. He's okay with you asking the question, where is he at with so much suffering in the world? It's a very simple answer. And I think that's the problem with most of society today because they look at the world, they look at everything that's happening in the world and all of the, all the horrific horrors that we see all the time. And, and we go, well, if God really is a God of love, then why is all this stuff happening? And it happens because we're human and we want what we want. And he's given each and every one of us a free will. We have the ability to make a choice. And people make choices. Governments make choices. Everybody makes choices. And because of the choices, we have sin in this world. And because of the choices, we have horrors in this world. We have evil in this world. But Jesus came to redeem all that. He came to redeem all of those things. So the question, why have you forsaken me? You know, and you, when, you, when you really kind of get down to it, it's kind of a rhetorical question. I mean, Jesus knew why. He was a part of the plan. He was in on the plan. When Adam chose to sin in the garden, God had to put things in motion so that Eden could be restored, if you will. God had to put something in, in motion so that, that reconciliation and restoration and redemption take place between he, the creator and the created. And so Jesus, being a part of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he was a part of the plan. And at some point, the Father said, Son, I'm, you're going to have to do this. And, and at some point, Jesus said, okay. He made that decision twice. You say, well, that's no script. You can't prove that. I think I probably could. Because when they were making the plan to redeem humanity, maybe it happened before the fall, maybe it happened after the fall. At some point, Jesus had to say, I'll be the sacrifice. And we know that he made the decision in Gethsemane the night before he was crucified because he said, Dad, not my will, but yours. I choose this path. So why have you forsaken me? He knew why. He was in on the plan from the beginning. God turned his back on his only son so that you and I will never have to experience the level of total abandonment by everything and everyone, including our Savior and our God. John 10, 17 and 18 says this. No one, Jesus is speaking, no one takes my life. I lay it down. In John 18, Peter, they're in the garden, and Peter draws his sword, and he's, he's ready to fight. And Jesus looks at Peter and says this, put away your sword. I must go through with this. I must go through with this. He's making the decision every day, every moment, all the way through this trauma and all through this horror that he's living. He's making a decision over and over and over. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And while he's on the cross crying out, why have you forsaken me? In the back of his mind, he knows why. And yet he still did it. He didn't have to. Scripture tells us he could, have, he could have summoned legions of angels. Legions of angels. To just wipe everything in Old Testament, KJV, smite everything. You know, I mean, you ever really, if you want to wish something bad on somebody, you wish that they'd be smoted.
God just smite them. That just, that's just like worse than kill. Jesus knew this. He had the opportunity to call down legions of angels to be rescued right up until the 11th hour and 59th minute. Right until he said, it is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I commit my spirit. He had the, the, he had the authority to call it down and call it over. But he didn't. He chose it. He says, I choose this. When he said in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours, dad, he's making the choice. He made the choice over and over and over throughout the ensuing trials that went on, throughout the agony and the pain of the cross. He continually makes the choice. Why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that? Well, we know he said it once before because it was a reality. But there's another reason behind it too. I think we need to look at this morning. And here's the reason. This was his humanity speaking. Jesus is fully God, but he's fully human. And in his humanity, he's speaking. Why have you forsaken? He's on the cross speaking, but he's on the cross speaking, letting you and I know on April the 17th in 2022, he's letting us know that I know what abandonment is. And wherever you're walking today, when you feel alone and you feel like you've got no one, I want you to understand that I know how that feels because I've lived it. I've lived it at a level that no one else will ever have to live this side of eternity. I want you to do me a favor this morning. Just indulge me for just a second. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to listen to something. I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read a passage of scripture this morning and I want you to listen to this passage of scripture. Lord, you're the God who saves me day and night. I cry out to you. My prayer comes before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with trouble and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit and I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken me my, from me my closest friends that have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for the help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That passage I just read is Psalm 88. In Jerusalem, the place that is traditionally known as Caiaphas' house, where the trials took place. 
off to one room, there's a hole in the floor. And under that floor is a, is a, is a cave, a dungeon, if you will. And when Jesus is between trials, they would lower him down in that pit. Psalm 88 is a messianic psalm speaking of what Jesus is experiencing that night. Your Savior, my Savior, the one that bled and died on the cross for you and I, experienced darkness as his closest friend at a level that you and I never will. It's describing Jesus' experience the night during the trials leading up to his crucifixion and actually on it as well. I mean, listen, look at, look at the, the imagery in this passage. You put me in the lowest pit. You've taken from me my closest friends. I'm confined, I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. My hands are stretched out. I'm like one without strength. My arms are stretched out. I mean, everything in this psalm tells us and speaks of what Jesus is enduring on the cross. And the purpose for that is to ensure that you and I have someone that knows us and knows what we're going through at a level that he can look at us every single time and say, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly how you feel. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So we approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What is God's, what, who, is, who is at God's throne? Who's at the right hand of the Father calling your name every single solitary day? The one who was abandoned for you the one who bled out for you, the one who died for you, the one who went into the grave willfully, went to the cross willfully, went into the tomb, but he's also the one that raised from the dead on the third day. He knows what you're feeling. He wants you to know that you are really never truly alone. He is always there for you. Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Two, two verses down, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Joshua 1.5, I will, God speaking, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you everywhere you go. Yeah, but that's Old Testament stuff. Oh, okay. Hebrews 13.5, God, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? Matthew 28, 20, Jesus is speaking. He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we must also recognize and understand that his death, burial, and resurrection ensures that you and I are never abandoned. We are never truly alone. He's a friend that is closer than a brother, a husband to the husbandless, a father to the fatherless. He is savior. He is healer. He is deliverer. He is redeemer. He is my peace. He is my refuge. He is my shelter. But above everything else, Jesus Christ is my Lord. Because he died for me, because he was abandoned, I don't have to be abandoned. Because he was forsaken, I'm never forsaken. Because he died as my sin, 
and as your sin. They buried him in a tomb, but the grave couldn't hold him and death couldn't keep him. And he came out on the third day and he is alive forevermore. The God that we serve is alive. He is not dead. He is alive this morning. Come on church, let's give God some praise because Jesus is alive this morning. Come on, you can do better than that. Stand to your feet and give him praise in the house. Jesus Christ is a living savior. He's a living savior. Yes. Now just remain standing for just a second. We're gonna, I'm going to get you out of here in just a little bit, but I want to tell you something this morning. I don't know who you are, but I know that there's at least one person in this house, and I believe it's a lady, okay? I believe it's a woman. When the Lord spoke to my spirit on the highway, and it wasn't, Phil, there's a lady here. It was just, I just was made to know this, okay? He doesn't speak to me audibly. I don't, I, don't, I don't see things in the stars and stuff like that. I don't have that gift. But it was so real in the cab of my truck Thursday morning that there was going to be somebody here that you have had some event that's taken place over the last week or two in your life that you are absolutely, and you feel like that you're absolutely and totally abandoned. There's nothing and no one in your, and you came to church this morning as a last resort. Now, those of you that make genuine your church home, you know I'm not, I'm, I, don't, I'm not, I don't do this very often. But this was so real Thursday. I don't know who you are, but you're in this house today. And I don't know what, I don't know what you're con contemplating in your mind, but you came here today as a last resort. In your thoughts this week, you thought I've got nothing to live for. I'm telling you today, you've got everything to live for. Jesus loves you. He loves you. He died for you. He was abandoned so that you will never, he will always be right where you are. And even in times when you feel like you've lost contact, you need to recognize this, he's always there. Don't let go of your faith. It may be hard to sense the contact from time to time, but don't let go of your faith. Bow your heads with me in the house, okay? Just bow your heads all over the room. Who is that person? If you're here, would you raise your hand? And say, I, I'm, yes, okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Okay, there's more than one. Father, you see those that have raised their hand in this house this morning. God, I'm thankful, God, that when you, when you prompt those things, that you have a plan. And your plan today was to focus this particular service on this particular Easter to the lives of these people that have raised their hand in this house. God, I pray that you'll speak deeply to them this morning. That you'll speak deeply to them today. Let them know, if you haven't already, if, they are, if they're not already grabbing on to the life ring that's been tossed to them this morning, Father, that they will. That they will know, Father, that everything in the plan for the cross of Christ was to bring us to this moment in time. Jesus, you became sin for us. All of our sin were laid on your back. And in that moment in time, the Father turned his back on you and you became sin. And you fulfilled the request and the requirements of the perfect sinless sacrifice. It is no longer necessary 
for an animal to die for the covering of sin because your blood doesn't cover it. Your blood washes it away. It's never remembered against us again. Father, do your work. Do your work in this house this morning. All right, look up here at me, okay? For those of you that raised your hand, our altar team's going to be hanging around the front. You say, well, how will I know that it's them? They're going to be ones that are standing looking that way. Okay? Here's what I'd like for you to do. If you raise your hand and you need somebody to talk to this morning, you need somebody to pray specifically with you, when we dismiss here in a little bit, I want you just to come and find one of them. Okay? Because they're going to be here across the front looking that way. If someone's up here looking, if you're looking at their backs, probably not one of the altar team. Okay? Find them talk with them. But before we, before we dismiss this morning, in the, in the, underneath the chair in front of you there, if you're on the front row, it's in your chair. Take the elements out. For those of you that were with us last year, we have been delivered from the, the old communion cups, the ones that it took a literally a mechanical engineering degree to get into. Every time we do communion, we had those other ones. I had to get two or three before church and practice because I could never get them open. But these we can. But I want, us to, I want us to take just a moment at the Lord's table this morning before we dismiss. Go ahead and take out the, the little wafer. Oh, and by the way, this is actually a little tiny piece of unleavened bread. It's not styrofoam. It's the real thing. Hallelujah. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He had all of his disciples gathered around him at the Last Supper, and he took the bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He this remembers of me. Shall we eat together this morning? After they had eaten, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes. And before we drink this morning, we're going to pray over this, but I want to tell you something. I mentioned it a while ago just in a prayer, but I want to tell you straight up. What this little tiny cup represents is the greatest force the world has ever known. Because it literally takes all of our sin, every one of us, individually, the sin of our past, the sin of our present, and the sins of our future. And if we live and breathe in the blood, under the blood of Jesus Christ, they are washed away. And the Bible teaches that they are never remembered against us again. You say, well, ah, but my sin, I, I see my sin. Listen to me. Humans can still remember stuff, but God chooses to wipe it away. God chooses to wipe it away, and he refuses to remember it. It's gone. It's gone. Father, we take the cup this morning, and we lift it up, and we lift you up today. Your plan for redemption 
through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, ensures that we have peace with you, that we have reconciliation to you, that we are never abandoned, that we are never truly alone, and that one day we will see you face to face and be with you in eternity. We give you praise for the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and we say thank you to Jesus for willingly laying down his life. Shall we drink together this morning? everybody said amen in the house. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.